Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. We have a new sponsor, Little Shop of Stories, located in Decatur, Georgia. It is possibly the best bookstore in the known universe. It's a local, independent children's bookstore, but they're so much more than just a bookstore. If you've never shopped there, you're missing out. You can call and speak to a bookseller anytime to get personalized recommendations and follow them on social media to keep up with the many, many events they organize. You can find them online at littleshopofstories.com and they ship all over the world. And welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And we are starting our ninth season. And to celebrate the 100th year of Newberry this year, we are going to cover the very first year that they awarded the Newberry Medal, which is 1922 for books published in 1921. Today, we're going to be discussing The Golden Fleece and the Heroes Who Lived Before Achilles by Podrick Collum. Illustrated by Willie Pogani. I have an annotation. The ancient triumphs and tragedies of the Greek myths are woven through the central story of Jason and his quest for the Golden Fleece. The many stories told by Orpheus to the sailors in the story might be the very ones that the Argonauts heard on their long voyage. And this is from the Newberry and Caldecott Awards book published by ALA in 2009, edited by KT Horning. So to start off, we have to just first... Uh, acknowledge that this is the very first year that they ever had the Newberries. And honestly, it was, this sounds terrible, but kind of slim pickings as far as kids literature goes, in my opinion. What do you think? I would make the argument that these are not, a lot of these aren't children's books. Well, okay. But see, that's my point. But some of them, some of them have children in them. (laughs) I feel like that's the only distinction. Like they're so they're, they're so dry. They're so dry. But I think they were trying to like start off very highbrow and be like, we're bringing literature to children and be very educational. Like the very first winner is called The History of Mankind. And so like you're covering a topic like that. And then this is covering basically all of Greek, you know, mythology. And as we'll discuss in coming weeks, books like Cedric the Forester and The Old Tobacco Shop. But I feel like they had such sort of highbrow intentions when they started this. <laughs> that, I, <laughs> or maybe this is just what was available. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I need to do more research before some of our other episodes, but they're just, they are, if you want, if you respond <laughs> to a book putting you to sleep, like you use that as like a a sedative. <laughs> These books are going to do it for you. I mean, they are. You know what's weird? I'm normally the kind of person I love to read at bedtime, but it keeps me up. Like I will stay up and finish a good book if it keeps me up all night. And I really enjoy that. I fell asleep reading this book and I never do that. And I fell asleep like every time I sat down to read this book. It was terrible. I mean, I don't want to say it was terrible, but it was terrible. But you know what's funny is that looking at some research about the author and his, his books. Like he was very well regarded. This book was very well regarded when it came out. Like it actually was. It's just that our standards I think are so different now. It was extremely well regarded. He has a literary pedigree that is just impeccable. He is very well lauded or very highly lauded in the literary community. I mean, he helped launch 
theaters and and literary salons and and various you know publications he he was friends with James Joyce he was he was friends with Yeats he like he was involved in like the renaissance of of literature in Ireland he did so many amazing things and yet this book is so dry it's incredibly dry and I could not finish it. I'm I'm going to just be honest with our listeners, whoever may be listening to this, because I I, can't, I don't even know if like this season is a sell like a selling point. If people are going to even be interested. <laughs> Before we get into the book, I wanted to get into a little bit about the Newbery Award itself. And so each episode of the season, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of the Newbery. So it was the first world's first children's book award, and it was named for the man credited with publishing the first children's book. In 1744, John Newberry, a British bookseller, published a little pretty pocketbook, a book of simple rhymes for each letter of the alphabet. And this is from the, an article, 100 Years of the Newberry Medal by Taylor Hartz in American Libraries Magazine. The book often came with a gift, a ball or a pincushion for its young readers, What's a kid going to do with a pincushion? So, because they're good little girls. Oh, God, I forgot about that. (laughs) Oh, okay. And this is given annually since 1922. It was instituted by Frederick G. Melcher, a bookstore manager and editor of Publishers Weekly. Per Melcher's agreement with the ALA Executive Board, the award was to have three goals, to encourage original creative work in the field of books for children, to emphasize to the public that contributions to the literature for children deserve similar recognition to poetry, plays, or novels, to give those librarians who make it their life work to serve children's reading interests an opportunity to encourage good writing in this field. And then he established the Caldecott Award in 1937. So and maybe the key here is like the encouragement of of more work in this area, because maybe like this is a, a starting point and without some sort of accolades to be earned, like people wouldn't invest as much into improving it. Maybe it's just hard to think about like, I guess it's hard for me to think about like, okay, we're going to create this award to make people want to make better books. But I mean, I guess that's, that is a valid thing, but I also just feel, I also feel like I I don't, I don't know. Well, I can see, I mean, having worked in a bookstore for so long, like I worked in a bookstore that specifically sells children's books and really good children's books. And you pay so much attention to it. Like I can see how a bookstore owner looking at the lack of good children's books might be like, okay, let's create an incentive, you know, reward the people who have already started doing this, even if it's in a dry 1920s educational kind of a way, but like Mm -hmm. create, create an incentive for people to be like, oh yeah, I want to, I want to earn that prize. Of course it was to encourage librarians, encourage authors, all of that stuff. But Mm -hmm. I just have a hard time, one, believing that's from 1744, when John Newberry created the first children's book, you know, supposedly he is credited with that, that there weren't advances to actually creating books that children 
liked, would like. I mean, or maybe, you know, maybe in 1922, children were just boring, stuffy little old people. I I don't know. I mean, I know that the culture of childhood and the idea of childhood is still a relatively new invention. The incentive they gave away to sell books was a pincushion, Jenny. Not to the boys. (laughs) They got a ball. (laughs) So the last thing I'll say about the history of the Newberry is I'm going to read the little little beginning of Betsy Bird's article, a new year, a Newberry timeline that hits the misses, the highs, and the lows of the Newberry over a hundred years. And this was published in School Library Journal. You don't get to 100 without witnessing monumental changes over the years. When the Newberry Award premiered in 1922, the world was a different place. That year, the tomb of Tutankhamun was uncovered in the Valley of Kings in Egypt. Mussolini and the fascist party came to power in Italy. The Bolsheviks won the Russian Civil War. And here in the United States, a New England bookseller by the name of Frederick C. Melcher helped foment the world's first literary prize for children's books. Until the moment Melcher first stood before members of the American Library Association in 1920 and proposed an award for the best written American books for kids, no literary prize for children's literature existed anywhere. So whether he, for, you know, the reasons stated or reasons unstated, it was the first children's literature award. So, you know, and now I think over time, you know, and I think, even a few years into it, I think you're right. You know, it did ins- it did inspire more childlike, I think, literature. Well, when even I'm sitting here next to my next to my collection, actually, my shelves are right next to me. I've got my books arranged chronologically, so I can see where they start. You know, with the books that we're talking about this season, and it's surprising how quickly it gets to really entertaining books. Like books that would really engage children. I think that some of the books at the beginning were written for children in the educational sense, but it really is surprising how quickly it gets to stories that kids are would actually be interested in and want to listen to, like real adventures. And yes, a lot of them are still covering historical figures or, you know, educational topics, but they get to they get to entertaining surprisingly quickly. Yeah, they do. And even when they're not maybe in styles that I like, they get a lot more interesting, at least with the premises. Yeah, I would agree. It is the Argonautica, essentially. Uh, Yes, but it covers all of Greek mythology. (laughs) Imagine reading a telephone book. So honestly, (laughs) I hate to say this, the thing that kept coming to mind because I grew up going to a little private Christian school and I'm a weirdo who loved to read. It reads like the book of revelations. It honestly does. Like, have you ever just yeah, sat? It and does. It <laughs> does. Yeah. And it is so dull. I mean, and I love mythology. As, I speaking love as a person too. who loves mythology, this is, this is a, mm, you're right about the phone book thing though. It's just a list. It feels like it's just a list. Mm-hmm. It feels like a list. It feels like a biblical list. It feels like the King James Version Bible. Yeah, it, it um, feels like they were trying to use very poetic, high language. It it almost sounds like someone was directly trying to translate from the Greek. Yeah, I yeah. But it, it isn't. It's, it's completely, I mean, it was originally written in English and as far as we know. And it is just, it lacks, I mean, for every beat that, 
you have in Jason's story for the the quest for the Golden Fleece and all the other stories that we know from the Odyssey and the Iliad, Argonautica, the Golden Ass, everything, it takes every little bit of fun and interestingness out of it. There is no... There is no tension. There is no, there is no Nobody stopping ha- for a moment to make make a description of something that would make it fun and engaging. The only descriptions that popped out whatsoever were problematic. Yeah, I did get far enough to see some some bad stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, every time that they describe an attractive woman, it's that they had tiny hands, they had tiny feet. Oh, her little hands. Like, how could I, how could I go away from her? You know, or when they're talking about people who were attractive, comparing them to each other, they were comparing people like beautiful, light featured, blah, 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 compared to this heavy, dark, you know, person over here. Like there were just a lot of problematic attitudes that were ingrained that come through in very mild but noticeable ways. Yeah, I I started hitting that stuff and I was like, I I need a break and then I never <laughs> picked it back up. The thing is... I, I mean, honestly, I just never picked it back up. Uh, the thing that is annoying to me is that every time that the, like the narrative started to hit its stride, you know, of Jason and the Argonauts themselves. As soon as you start to actually be able to immerse yourself in the book, even a teeny, teeny, teeny bit, he breaks off and tells a story of other Greek mythology. Like he has a storyteller in the book. I mean, he's got several storytellers. Like he, he specifically has Orpheus on the ship to to tell these stories, but he has, during their various adventures, he has different people telling different stories, but they're all, I think he's so intent on covering all of like the Greek mythology that would have been the past to Jason and the Argonauts that he's not paying attention to the fact that it's really breaking up his narrative. I completely agree. It's just, it's like, hey kids, let me tell you a really exciting story in the most boring way possible, but I'm not going to finish that story. I'm going to start talking about something else that's boring that should be exciting. Yeah. Oh, going to do it again. Like it it's almost feels diabolical. In and the, the only entertaining parts to me felt accidental. Like there's part where Heracles is on his ship and all the other men are on this island with these beautiful women and they won't come back to the ship. And he's like yelling at them from the ship to come back. And I found that part hilarious because he's just like shouting from the ship that they better get back there or they're going to be sorry. But that felt totally accidental. Like that was yeah, definitely, <laughs> it was not intentional humor. Yeah. I don't think that was on purpose. No. <laughs> so, I really don't. And yeah. I, hate to, I hate to just crap all over this book because like, like I was saying at the time, this book was extremely well received. The author had a contract with Macmillan, the publishers, for two books a year, which like set him up for pretty much the second half of his life. And these books were so well received that he was then hired to travel to Hawaii and write three books about their folklore and history. Like everybody loved these books when they I'm came sure out. I'm sure there's one at all racist. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I, I admit I have not read those. I am not going to read those, but I think you are probably right. Looking at his bibliography, I'm very interested in there's a book called The Peep Show Man. <laughs> oh. Well, so he wrote more than 60 books and plays and was a poet. And I did read some of the poetry. And I think that where he excelled, at least to begin with, was capturing 
the daily life in Ireland. Like that, I mean, talk about writing what you know, you know, he, he wrote some really, it's not my favorite kind of poetry, but it does capture a tone and a mood and a time in Ireland, which I think is valuable. So I can see how that would work out for him at the time. But then to move into the Greek mythology and then just beat a dead horse. I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, because I grew up reading stories about Greek mythology, and a lot of them were very sort of matter-of-factly told, and I didn't have a problem with that. It's just that I literally, even as an adult, had trouble keeping my eyes open for more than 10 or 15 pages at a time. He took all the personality out of these characters and just turned it into a list of like, these were the Titans and this one married this one and they had this child. Like every exciting point was numb. I I mean, if I'm going to look at like try to silver lining it, I'm going to be like, okay, well, it's an exhaustive history of our exhaustive catalog of the characters. So, but I mean, all right. But it's not readable, I don't think. I mean, it's just. I mean, I don't want to. Mm. I could start talking about some read-alikes and read-betters that I have in the context of how how they're better, but there are better ways to do a catalog of characters. You know, there's a better way to do an exhaustive history that would be either just a reference point, which would be fine, or an interesting story, which would be great. But mm-hmm. to try to do it this way and act as though it's an exciting story when that's not what you're writing is just difficult. Like I think any modern kid now would never make it through this. No. I mean, unless, unless they have a very, very old soul and I actually, I don't think that kid exists. I really don't think (laughs) the kid exists. I mean, it's not even good as a read aloud. Miami Book Fair is back in November with hundreds of your favorite authors and their new books, and you can see them in person and online. Come to downtown Miami or watch at home for best-selling children's and YA authors like Case and Calendar, Mary Pope Osborne, and R.L. Stein, the master of spooky tales and spine-tingling suspense. Rainbow Rowell, Chris Grabenstein, and Zoraida Cordova will also be there talking about love stories, mysteries, and mythical creatures like grumpy unicorns and fire-breathing chipmunks, plus story time, comics, arts and crafts, science experiments, music, robots, and other family fun in Children's Alley during Street Fair weekend. Stop by to learn how to play the drums, hang out with stilt walkers and balloon twisters, or write your very own poem. And there's lots of other cool stuff to do and see, too. Miami Book Fair starts Sunday, November 13th. Details at MiamiBookFair.com. I did like the illustrations, though. I, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I liked the line work. I, wouldn't, I won't say that I always liked the absolute, like, the composition, but I liked the line work. I thought it was often very interesting. And that was by William Pogani. He was a Hungarian illustrator of children's books and other books. Also and, very prolific. Yeah. And he focused on mythical animals and nymphs and pixies and botanical details. It's very interesting. He actually illustrated for a lot of um, – he illustrated for column several times. He illustrated for Pushkin and – Carol for Lewis Carroll for Alice's Adventures in Wonderland in 1929. Yeah, I mean, 
for for Nathaniel Hawthorne. I mean, he he illustrated for a lot of different people, but the really interesting thing that I found, and this is Wikipedia, is that author Whitaker Chambers described him as being the brother of Joseph Pogani, who evidently was a communist, and he sued. Willie sued Chambers, and he won. Oh, no, he lost in court. They found that, the, uh, according to Time magazine, a lower court had found that Chambers and his mistaken identification had not maliciously implied that Willie was closely associated with, quote, a communist leader and spy who had been, quote, once until Stalin liquidated him, communist Hungary's puppet commissar of war. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, so that was interesting. <laughs> wow. Oh, he illustrated a version of uh, Gulliver's Travels as well. Well, so I don't hate this type of line drawing necessarily. I have to wonder about the wisdom of some specific design choices that were made, like mm. the the boobs that he put on the harpies. <laughs> um, and, and the fact that, I mean, just to be upfront, like there is a line drawing of a horse penis on the front of this book. Um, I, I don't think that was necessary. Uh, well, I also, I mean, that's not, I wouldn't say that's really for sure. And that was not on my version. I did not see a horse wiener on my version. So like the very intro scene of this book is when they're giving Jason to a centaur king. And that illustration uh, is, let's say, anatomically correct for the horse part of the centaur. And that is the front cover illustration on my copy of this book. So... It's just, and it's also like the first full page illustration in this book. And there's nothing wrong really with the illustration. It's just that it's kind of odd because the line drawing is so sparse and then the hair on the centaur. So like the the centaur is very muscly and has like this insane amount of curly hair, like little girl unicorn curly hair kind of horse. And then the front part of the man is uh, weirdly muscly and the back part of the horse just has a very evident like horse penis and I'm just like I get I get what you're doing but uh, to choose to not be anatomically am hearing, correct am I hearing that you found him you found it alluring <laughs> no uh <laughs> I think I'm just I'm wondering about his specific design choices for this book yeah I mean they're sometimes out of left field and there's it's it's odd often but <laughs> But I, you know, I think I was just trying to grasp onto anything <laughs> that just, wasn't the text. I don't really need to see harpy nipples is my point. You know, I'm I'm just. I think we all need to see harpy nipples. Uh, <laughs> it's creepy. It's creepy. <laughs> don't be distressed by the human body. I guess they're not the human body. Never yeah. mind. <laughs> it's nature, Mary. It's nature, Marcy. <laughs> nipples are nature. Are they though on harpies? Oh, on harpies. I don't know. Anyway. I mean, because who's to say whether they have nipples or not, right? That's totally made up, just like harpies are made up. This is true. This is true. If you want an exhaustive and kind of dry history of most of Greek mythology up to a certain point, this is the book for you. If you want something that's going to be entertaining in any respect, it is not. And if you're looking for books for your kids, I think this is probably not a great recommendation. But as a sleep aid... Very effective. Very, very effective. Yeah. Jenny, did you have any read-alikes? I had one read-alike. Okay. Well, 
aside from what I mentioned, which are the original Iliad, Odyssey, yeah. mm-hmm. Argonautica, the Aeneid, which are all more readable than Oh my this. gosh. I, I love reading. <laughs> like, give me Greek plays all day. I'll just sit there and, I mean. Yeah, depending on the translation, but still all readable, more readable than this thing. Yeah. But as far as like a children's book of Greek myths, I don't know how to say their name. Dolaire. <laughs> Okay, so the Dallaire's book of Greek myths, yeah. it was published in 1962. It's by Igri and Edgar Dallaire, and it's just – it's beautifully illustrated. It's engaging. There are some things that are problematic to modern audiences in it, but I feel like overall it's a much better representation of the Greek myths. It's much more engaging. It's much more interesting. It has movement and doesn't feel like a stale piece of crouton. (laughs) I know that was actually top of my list too, because I think also if you're looking for a book for kids, it's just, it's, it's pretty, you know, and it's interesting and it it doesn't put anybody to sleep. I've got two copies, (laughs) you know, thanks. Thanks for letting me have that one because that was my only one. Yeah. The reason that I first started liking Greek mythology is because when I was a kid, I had this set of books that's called The Bookshelf for Boys and Girls, published by somebody called the University Press. I want to say in the 30s, like they are not new books. I My dad gave them to me. He told me that they were old when he first got them as a kid. And there's like 10 volumes. It's a huge set. But every book is a little bit different. So there's one that's called like things to make and things to do. And one is called golden stories and fables. And they're very old school. I can, God, I can smell that. I can like smell that old book smell from those specific books right now. Like the ink and the dust and the old glue and the old cloth. Yeah. They have just such a specific smell. And I spent so much time reading them that God, it's amazing. They're red. They're, they're bound in red cloth and I still have them, but there's one that has mythology in it. And it has a whole section on Greek mythology. And I just got hooked reading these. I'm sure they're very abridged and they're not even by a specific author. They're just, but they were so interesting and they had very similar actually line drawing illustrations, but I loved them. And I just, I read them over and over and over again so that as I got a little bit older, you know, I started reading, you know, whatever I could get my hands on, you know, I've got Bullfinch's mythology and I've got rewritten books of, of Greek mythology. So I doubt anybody can get their hands on those, although they're, they are available. They're not currently being published as far as I know, but old ones are still around. Those are really good and they were great to start off with as a kid. But as an adult, if you're looking for some Greek mythology books, one thing that the the Golden Fleece did not do is to take like those specific moments that could be dramatized and make them really interesting and compelling. And so I really enjoy like the mythology version of historical fiction where they do that, where they take a specific story and just run with it. So um, if you're looking for adult books about Greek mythology that are unputdownable, <laughs> you could uh, try Ariadne by Jennifer St. Searcy by Madeline Miller, um, A Thousand Ships by Natalie, Natalie Haynes. There's a whole bunch and they're really, really, really good. So those would be my, my read betters. Good call on adult books. I would also add the Penelope ad by Margaret Atwood. Oh, yeah. That one's a really a favorite of mine. And there's, I know there's some more. There was a book that I read a long time ago. It's called God's Behaving Badly, and it's about 
gods who mixing and mingling with with humans in London and like to in the mid 2000s and it's by Marie Phillips also, if you have any interest in really getting interested in Greek mythology um, as like the tawdry drama-filled story that it is, there's a webcomic called Lore Olympus by Rachel Smythe, which is fabulous. And it focuses mostly on Persephone, but it covers all of these characters. Like everything that Podrick Column just like lists off very dryly. She totally brings to life. And it has an equally huge and complex cast of characters, but it is completely compelling and so well done and just like filled with all of the emotion that's lacking in this book. And it's silly maybe to say that about a webcomic, but it's amazing. And I think they're actually making a Netflix series out of it. It's not... It's not weird to say that about a webcomic. There's some incredible stuff being made these days on, you know, they're just webcomics. But yeah, I I love it. They put out about an episode a week and I look forward to it every week. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to our first episode of our ninth season, which we talked about uh, not very favorably. The Golden Fleece and the Heroes Who Lived Before Achilles by Padraig Colum, illustrated by Willie Pogeny. And next up, we're going to be reading Cedric the Forester by Bernard Mitchell, illustrated by J. Scott Williams. And I'm hoping I started it. I'm hoping it goes a little bit better, but the first few sentences are not super interesting. (laughs) So we'll see. (laughs) Tune in next time for not very interesting. Um, (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye. We'd like to say thanks again to our sponsor, Little Shop of Stories, our local independent children's bookstore, for helping to make this podcast possible, both financially and through their phenomenal programming. They're offering an exclusive promo for our listeners when you shop online at littleshopofstories.com. Just use the promo Newberry Tart to get 10% off your purchase. That's Newberry with one R, N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T, to get 10% off your purchase. Thanks for joining us today on the Newberry Tart Podcast. Please find us on social media. We're on all the usuals. And please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen. It helps other people find the podcast and helps keep us going. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.